listening to the Muzzleloaders Podcast, the show where we talk about anything and everything black powder. How's it going, everybody? This is Darren with Muzzleloaders.com, and you're listening to the Muzzleloaders Podcast, and I'm really excited to uh, have the opportunity to chat with Richard Schenk. Uh, he recently went on an awesome uh, elk hunt, and he did it all traditional with a flintlock, uh, you know, traditional garb and the whole nine yards, as well as uh, just his... his uh, experience and expertise in just traditional hunting and traditional muzzle loading in general uh, i'm really excited to chat with you how are you doing today richard i'm doing fine how are you i'm doing incredible i'm doing incredible elk season i did some hunting last weekend and you have some more hunts coming up here in about a week and a half so uh there's not much to complain about ah, there you go yeah yeah, so um, how about you? It sounds like you've been doing some hunting. I know that uh, over on your side of the country, hunting season's a little bit less delineated than it is over here on the west. Uh, what hunts do you have going on right now? Uh, we're into our, our archery season right now here okay. in Tennessee. Awesome. Um, I did manage to harvest a doe the other day uh, with the crossbow since I'm older and my shoulders are tore up. Um but that was for a family in need. Okay. So I do that every year for them. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so is that, uh, is that like, how many animals are you able to take during that season or how's the, how are the seasons like regulated over there? Oh, geez. I think all total I'm allowed, uh, eight deer. Oh man. Here in Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so, wild. Yeah, over here it's yeah, like we're lucky if you can. We could we couldn't even find a deer on the ranch this past weekend. So, huh? That's there's a different world out there. That's for sure. Yeah, totally. It is. It is crazy how you know just vast the United States is and how different everything is from from you know spot to spot. Because on the podcast we've talked to people from all over the country and every place is different. You know, and every every place has different cultural um things with regard to hunting and different regulations and different species and all that kind of stuff and uh mm -hmm. you know really you could you could hunt your whole life and never you know hunt everything so yeah well, so, we uh we have it pretty good out here yeah totally um so the the elk hunt that you're able to go on um you sent me a picture uh i will throw a pic I'll throw that picture up on the video version of the podcast for you guys to check out as well but um you were able to go on a hunt in Colorado and you decided that that wasn't difficult enough so you wanted to do it with a flintlock and entirely traditional garb and all that kind of stuff so I kind of want to talk a little bit about that experience and, and share that with our listeners sure there we um First time I went out to this ranch, I did it with a 300 wind mag, and it wasn't. It just didn't do it for me. Sure. So I I rebooked for uh, well two years later, and I built the 58 caliber flintlock, and I made my buckskins, mm -hmm. the whole routine, and I did it the old timey way. Awesome. It was that is that with a uh, a rifle that you made. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sweet. Did you build it from a kit, or did you build it, like, you know, did you get the barrel and, and do the stock and all that kind of stuff? It was a high-end high, high -end kit. A high-end kit. Was it, like, a, a Petter Soli, or? Uh, no, it, well, it came from Jedediah Star. Oh, okay. Awesome. You know, um, 
it was, it was a nice kit. Went together nice and easy. Uh, you know, what can I say? It worked. <laughs> yeah, totally. Have you built a lot of kits? Uh, that was my third. Your third. Okay. What? Uh, uh, which, which one has been like the most memorable? You think? Oh, geez. I've got a 32 Southern Mountain left-hand flintlock I built. I've got a, a 62 Fusel smoothbore that I built. Um, the the smoothbore, I've shot everything from quail to pheasants to deer with. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the 32, I've shot fall turkeys in Pennsylvania, uh, squirrels here. Um it, <laughs> they're all my favorite yeah it's tough to choose because you you guys do a lot of squirrel hunting out there too mm-hmm. yeah it's, it, that's another that's another interesting difference because out here squirrels i think i think we have a season for like western grays or something like that but um most every squirrel that we see out here we can kind of just hunt year round but over there it's like a designated thing right yeah yeah uh here in tennessee starts i guess at the end of august and goes through uh, February, huh. and we also have a spring squirrel season towards the end of uh, turkey season. Awesome. So we can we can hunt squirrels quite a bit here. Just something to keep you occupied during the winter, you know, when there's not as much going on. Yeah, it keeps your eyes sharp. <laughs> you know? Keeps your aim. Keeps your aim good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I enjoy it. I look forward to it every year. So uh, it's the first first hunt of the year, basically. So what do you do with the squirrels when you shoot them? Do you eat them, or do you like skin them out, or what's the process? Uh, I eat them, <laughs> uh, skin them out, and uh, I put them in a the crock pot for a little while with some chicken stock, and then I bread them and fry them. Oh boy! And they turn out super tender. I have a uh, KFC type recipe that I, breading I put on it mm-hmm. and I haven't had a complaint yet huh so it's kind of like fried chicken then almost yeah yeah awesome yeah that's something that like out here we have we have a lot of ground squirrels we do have some tree squirrels but mainly like red diggers and you know uh I, we just always call them sage rats but like pretty much they just run around out in the desert um, and mm-hmm. I, you know, there's not the, well, one, there's not much meat on them unless you kill a big red digger. I'd probably eat a big red digger, but like the, the prairie dogs and the little sage rats and stuff, <clears throat> I don't think I would really want to eat one of those. Cause who knows what <laughs> they've been eating and where they've been around <laughs> and they're not very big to begin <laughs> with, you know? So, yeah, now we got the, uh, fox squirrels out here or red squirrels, we call them mm-hmm. and they are well, pretty big, man. Uh, about the size of a small house cat, I guess. Some of them. Really? Yeah, they get they get pretty big. So you could get a pretty decent amount of meat off of one of those things. Uh, one one good fox squirrel would be a meal for me, anyway. Huh. That's awesome. Yeah, I know that the yeah. the like we have some squirrels like that, but they're more in town. Like as we have like they're like a red they're like a red type squirrel. And they mm-hmm. run around in town, but I don't think I've ever seen one out in the woods. Out in the woods, we always run into like they're, they're I think they're called Western Greys, and they're pretty small. Um, mm-hmm. But 
I mainly know them just because they're super obnoxious and they make tons of noise. <laughs> when I, they're super annoying. Oh man. It's especially you're just, you're just wandering through and they make tons of noise. The only thing more annoying than a Western gray squirrel is a, is a grouse. I don't, do you guys have grouse in, in Tennessee? <laughs> Not as many as there, as there used to be. Oh, there yeah. used to be a lot. Um, I guess between, uh, farming practices and predators. Uh huh. Yeah. They not too many of them around anymore. Yeah, I mean that's you know, they're they're fun to hunt, but whenever you're not hunting them, uh that's always when they seem they want to pop up and during during bear season this year, I was wandering around and uh kind of like hiking up the side of this steep this steep uh face and I came around like the corner of a tree and just like maybe three feet in front of me because I was a stiff uh, steep cliff you know three feet in front of me like an arm's distance away this grouse just just took off you know and you know the, <laughs> the, the noise they make you know when they take off and, yeah. just, and I was like oh, oh you know you had to take you had to take a few minutes to kind of regain your composure after something like that happens you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> I remember them days <laughs> oh yeah yeah that's it, that's you know and that's what that's what hunting's all about it's the adventure and the fun stuff you know so oh yeah yeah yeah, so um, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit more about this this elk hunt. So you got plugged in with uh, a specific a specific guide. You went on a hunt last year and used a rifle, and it just wasn't challenging enough. So you decided to go again this year um, and yeah. do it with a muzzle loader. So what was like the you know? And I know you had to put some miles in to get that elk too. So um, uh, you know, how far was the shot? What were you using? What was your load? All that kind of stuff. Well, fifty eight caliber that I built. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was 124 grains of one and a half Swiss with a patched round ball. Um, oh, that day I get I put on close to seven and a half miles on my moccasins, and the first shot was about 60 yards, and I had a couple follow-up shots after that and finally put them down. But, uh, I'm not going to go into all the gory details. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. So what was yeah. now we, we chatted a little bit here a couple of weeks ago leading up to the podcast about your uh, moccasins. And I was surprised to hear that they're actually you think they're more comfortable than just regular hiking boots. Yeah, for for my feet with like bed arches or whatever it is, um, for some reason, Regular boots, which I've worn all my life in construction, uh, my feet get sore after a while. Hmm. 7.3-something seven miles that day in moccasins, and my feet were fine. Huh. So they're a thick borehide sole. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's almost like wearing a regular pair of shoes, I guess. And you said those were handmade, right? They were handmade by a specific by a company. Yeah, a long time ago, close to close to thirty years ago, I guess. Uh, Fox Moccasin Company. I'm sure they're long since gone. Um, like I said it's been close to thirty years, I guess, since I had the moccasins made. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a few other ones out there, though. You can find. The custom-made moccasins. Um, I know there's a guy down in uh, down by Gatlinburg, Tennessee, making them now. He's been advertising in the muzzleloader magazines. 
but uh, they they they've held up. They were a great investment. Awesome. Yeah, I think that I think that doing something like that, you'd think you know from an outside perspective, man, that my feet would get so sore wandering around in like you know moccasins because the moccasins I have are not they're not handmade like crafted to the level that yours are. Mine are like cheap moccasins that I bought you know mainly just for. Uh, the look of them back when I was working at Celtic festivals and, you know, selling swords and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I used to have to spend a whole day in those things and my feet would get so sore. But I imagine if you have like a handmade, you know, boar hide ones that are just able to kind of more conform to your foot rather than just providing no support, they'd probably be pretty comfortable over the long haul. Were they slippery? Do they have like any kind of texture on the bottom of them to help you get a grip? They're just, just leather, leather. Huh. Um, I, when I lived in Pennsylvania, I will tell you one thing: a pair of moccasins are better than skis in the snow. <laughs> Is uh, when I first got them, I was out hunting in in winter, uh-huh. late muzzleloader season, and had about six inches of snow on the ground, and I went down the hill real fast. <laughs> and, I had a hard time getting back up. <laughs> oh man, yeah, they were better than skis. Yeah, well, I imagine like I, obviously the snow, it's kind of tough to get traction just because of the you know it melts and conforms and all that kind of stuff and gets really slippery. But I would think that leather, mm-hmm. you know, if you're just wandering around through uh, just brush, the leather would probably get a pretty decent grip because it would you know it's a little it's a little more supple, so it kind of like grips onto whatever is underneath it, you know. Yeah. It, it, Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> you know, when the, when the ground's froze and there's snow on top, I don't think there's anything to help it except ice cleats. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. that's part of the mountain man experience, though, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've tried making my own cleats out of chains and rawhide, and I moved to Tennessee, and I don't have to worry about the snow anymore. Yeah, I think, I think when you start hunting with a flintlock, you kind of give up on, on trying to do things the easy way. And now you're just like trying to make things a little more difficult on yourself, you know, <laughs> intentionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know, it's no fun uh, doing it the easy way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the easy- more satisfaction. Yeah, the easy way never never yields results. You know, it's like I, you know, I had to hunt for this is this is going to seem silly to a lot of people, but I hunted for I think two years before I killed my first coyote. And it just like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just that process of trial and error and figuring it out and like, well, this isn't working, this isn't working. And then you finally find something that works. And then it's like the floodgates open, you know, it's like you crack the code. And I think that's where it's it's really fun. You know, that's where, that's where, you know, there's with hunting, you know, there's people that hunt their entire lives. And I think archery is like this. And I think that muzzleloading is like this where you can hunt your whole life and never truly master it all, you know, especially when you get into using a flintlock. There's so many ins and outs to all that that you could hunt your entire life and never really truly master the the art of it. No, I I wouldn't consider myself a master. I do fairly well, but <laughs> master, no. Yeah. Yep. So how how long have you been hunting traditionally? Oh, geez. Um, I guess late seventies, early eighties. I got my first uh, hawking. Mm-hmm. rifle i played with it a little bit and then i went strictly archery um i was two-time state champion in, in new jersey with archery so i didn't do any gun hunting for a few years and then 
I guess late 80s, mid 80s, I picked it back up again when I moved to Pennsylvania. And that got me started. I I had that uh, percussion, Thompson Center, and I couldn't use that in the late muzzleloader season in Pennsylvania because it was a flintlock only. So I bought a CVA flintlock that only went off maybe 25% of the time. <laughs> and then I, that's when I had my first uh, custom gun built. And I've been on it ever since. Yeah, it's kind of tough to get away from. You know, it's like once you start muzzleloading, it's kind of tough to stop. It's so much, you know, it's 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 very, it, there's a unique challenge to it. And it's, so it's pretty difficult sometimes to uh, move away from that challenge when you get sucked in. But um, so I, so you started muzzleloading kind of around the bicentennial time, kind of when muzzleloading was having its its resurgence. You know, companies like CVA are getting rolling and muzzleloading is mm-hmm. really having that major comeback. Yeah. Uh, back then, everybody wanted to be a mountain man. So they all had the buckskins like I made uh-huh. for in that picture you know, and had to have a hawking. And then I started to learn that, well, there was no mountain men in eastern Pennsylvania. So there were more long hunters. Mm-hmm. So I went that route for a long time. You know, um, French and Indian War, uh, Revolutionary War time. And it's just been growing ever since. Totally. So have you, over that time, have you seen. Uh, muzzleloading continue to grow or do you think it's kind of stagnated or what's like your 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 thoughts on that from having been involved for all those years uh i see it seems to be growing with like with your company the being lines and everything mm-hmm. um which is fine i just like to think that the people would have more interest you know, going back go from the inlines, go to the percussions, then go to the flintlocks and go back in time to expand their horizons. You know, uh, that's my thought on it anyway. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, as we've talked about, the traditional muzzleloading and history kind of go hand in hand. And I think that as you see interest in history grow, you see some muzzleloading interest grow and, and vice versa. And I think that, you know, right now I think muzzleloading is growing and I think inline muzzleloading specifically kind of as you pointed out. Uh, but I think that some of the traditional stuff, while it's growing, I think that there's kind of a lack in, in uh, desire for like historical knowledge. And mm-hmm. um, I think that that's kind of where you see a lot of that kind of stuff where inline hunters, they're really just strictly trying to hunt. They want to have the best chance possible at killing an animal during this, a specific season. Um, Mm. and I, I can, you know, I can relate to that. I think I'm probably going to put in for a, uh, muzzleloader antelope tag here in Oregon, just because it takes like 20 years to draw an antelope tag in Oregon Mm -hmm. if you hunt with a rifle, but if you hunt with a muzzleloader, you can do it in less than half the time. And, uh, then you can use like an inline and you still have pretty decent range on that. But, Mm -hmm. uh, for the history, you know, you can, you, you, you use a flintlock if you want to use a Kentucky rifle or if you want to use a, a Hawken or whatever. There's a certain um, level of history that goes into that, kind of like what you're saying about everybody wanting to be a mountain man, so they all bought Hawkins and Buckskins and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, mm-hmm. that, that's kind of the allure of the traditional side of it that I think is kind of lacking in, in some aspects of our culture today. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I have nothing against inlines. I have a couple of them here besides all those side, side locks and the pistols and everything else. Um, it's just not, it's, it was too easy. It's like shooting the elk with a 300 wind mag. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like eh, too easy. <laughs> so, so you know, go to the flint locks or just percussions and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I think when when you reach the level of just supreme hunter that that you are, you know, I think that having an inline would probably be kind of kind of like you know, just not not uh, not as because really cha- it, the challenge is the most fun part, you know, especially when you're able to shoot, you know, eight eight deer a year. Just shooting mm-hmm. eight deer a year for the sake of it is kind kind of gets old after a while, you know. Yeah. Um, but if you're able to add that additional challenge to it then that is gonna mm. that's really what keeps you hooked yeah yeah oh well, well, our our deer count here that's all between archery muzzleloader and rifle season oh okay so, I, I didn't want to you know think the thing was all muzzleloader <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to put i didn't want to put wrong information out there <laughs> sure <laughs> just shooting Eight deer in muzzleloader season, eight deer in archery season. <laughs> no, yeah. it's like four. We're allowed two bucks for the year, mm-hmm. and then uh, the rest of does. We're allowed. I think it's four deer with the bow, and then two, two with the muzzleloader, and then two uh, with the rifle. Okay, which you can use the muzzleloader during the rifle season anyway. So yeah. So do you um, do you get plugged in with any like rendezvous or historical associations? Uh, I was you know, about a year or so ago. I was looking into one organization, um, but it wasn't what I was looking for. Uh, they were more on the historic side. Um, Over Mountain Victory Trail Association. They do the Kings Mountain Battle. Mm. Uh, you could you could look that up, but anyway, they marched from Virginia all the way down to the Carolinas and the big battle down Kings Mountain. It was the first uh, battle that the British got whooped, and uh, those guys are real serious. I nothing but respect for them. Uh, they blow me away <laughs> with their authenticity and their knowledge of the history and everything. It was. That was just too much for me. Uh, I'd rather get with a bunch of guys and just go camping and hang out for the weekend and shoot and uh, just have a good time more so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that those kind of – those because there's different levels. And I think uh, we had uh, some people on the podcast on the past, and we talked about the different levels of, of different associations and societies, you know, because a lot of our, our rendezvous around here, at least the ones that I've been to, are a little bit more – lax with regard to apparel and that sort of thing because they're more trying to just Mm -hmm. reach out and um you know get people involved in muzzleloading and then you have the uh other associations sort of like the uh, nssa which is like a competition association but requires you know pretty strict pretty strict regulations with regard to uh apparel 
And then other yeah. associations like the one you're mentioning where they, their authenticity that they require of people that are a part of it to be, you know, pretty spick and span and pretty accurate. And I think that's cool. You know, I think that's awesome. And I think it just speaks to the diversity of muzzleloading, you know. Yeah, it, was, it is cool, but it was just too much for me mm-hmm. <laughs> to yeah. involve. Yeah, I'm kind of yeah, like I that. Would... Like, I, I'm a hunter just by by what I like to do and what I'm passionate about. And I enjoy muzzleloading, so I enjoy going to rendezvous. But um, I don't think I'm passionate about that aspect of it as much as some of people, some of the other people that I know. You know, my my main passion <laughs> is in hunting and, um, you know, the the challenge of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to go 100% uh, authentic as I can. Uh, just for me going out in the woods, uh, you know, playing around, shooting squirrels or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as far as it like being a juried type of organization, uh, it's too many rules and regulations. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The, the freedom. You got to have the freedom. Got to spread your wings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what it's all about. <laughs> the freedom. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, what, what, um, did you first start like getting plugged in with, with muzzleloader hunting and, um, out of state hunting specifically? Cause you said that you'd you know, obviously been muzzleloader hunting for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. but it hasn't been since like, since you retired from construction that, uh, you started doing more of the out of state hunting, like going to Colorado and, uh, you mentioned New Mexico as well. Yeah. New Mexico. Uh, I did that with a rifle, like, you know, modern rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I'm, I'm finally getting to do my bucket list stuff, mm-hmm. you know, uh, since I retired and kids are all gone, it makes it a lot easier, you know, um, I've well, turkey hunted in I don't know twelve states now. Uh, that that's my main obsession is turkeys. Really? Uh, I've got the Grand Slam with my 835 Ultra Mag, and now I think I'm going to do it with my side by side muzzleloader shotgun. Nice. So that'll add a few more tail fans to the wall. Yeah. Like I really need them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I, I enjoy turkey hunting. Um, in Oregon, we actually we have a, a fall and a spring season for turkeys, uh, and mm-hmm. and it's really enjoyable. This past year, I didn't get to do much turkey hunting at all, just because I was bit I was bear hunting. Um, and so bear for me, bear hunting kind of takes precedence over turkey hunting. But uh, if mm-hmm. I don't, you know, if I don't have a bear tag, then turkey hunting is is what I'm doing. Just because it's nice because it's springtime, you know. It, through the yeah. winter, there's nothing really to do except hunt coyotes, which I love. I love hunting coyotes, but um, mm-hmm. you know, in the springtime, as the weather's starting to get warm, and you know, it just it, for turkey hunting, almost seems like it's kind of like elk hunting light, where you know you're calling, there, you know, you're communicating with the the animals, and they're coming in, and you know, it's it's, it's very similar in my mind, at least. Uh, just, you know, obviously a little bit less, a little bit less physically challenging than elk hunting, but, um, just kind of sim, a similar experience kind of gets your heart pumping a little bit and uh, I really enjoy it. So. Yeah. I, I, I draw the parallels also. You know, it is a lot like elk hunting. You're com- conversing with the critters mm-hmm. and trying to get them to go against their nature. Uh, by nature, the hen's supposed to go to him and you're 
trying to coax him to go against his instincts. Yep. yep. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. So do you have any, do you have any tips for, uh, for people who are turkey hunting and, and specifically turkey hunting with a muzzleloader? Patience. Patience, patience, patience. Um, I, I can sit in one spot for three hours. Really? And I've had it where I've been like two and a half hours. I get up and I hear turkey clock and I spook them because they're coming in silent behind me. Oh, or yeah. off to the side. Stuff like that. Patience. Mm-hmm. And I don't call as much as I used to years ago. I do a lot less calling nowadays. Hmm. I don't know how your turkeys are out there, but it seems like these eastern turkeys have gotten smart. And uh, sometimes less is more calling-wise. Yeah, I I kind of agree with you on that. I think that um, over-calling is something that people kind of they, they run into a lot, whether it's elk hunting or turkey hunting, um, mm-hmm. because you're – you know, your, your instinct is obviously, you know, patience and, and, and not calling a lot are kind of, kind of go hand in hand because if you don't hear anything in like five, 10 minutes, you're like, Oh man, I need to start calling again. And, you know, just keep, keep hammering them. But I think turkeys specifically, like they have really good, like they hear that and then they know where it is and when to get there and they kind of work their way over. Um, and I've kind of found that as well. I've really struggled with over calling cause with my strategy with turkey hunting and maybe it's a poor strategy i've killed a few turkeys in in my time but probably nowhere near as many as you have but i you know i my strategy is like i find a spot where i know turkeys are near maybe i roost them the night before or something like that and then mm-hmm. i sit down in a in a space where i can have some some line of sight and then i will call and kind of sit there for like you said 2 hours but I just have such a hard time sitting that long. <laughs> I like, I'm pretty active, you know, I enjoy like, you know, elk hunting and stuff where I can re- you know, move and get out. And so I do like turkey hunting, but like the sitting there really is the toughest part for me. That's more mentally challenging than I think most other types of hunting. Yeah, I've cured myself of that. Gotta go, gotta go, gotta <laughs> go. Is uh, I hunt in West Virginia a lot also. Uh-huh. And We'd get out and we'd hear a turkey gobble in the morning, sunrise. Okay, I'm heading down this mountain, up this one, over to the next. By the time I get there, he stopped gobbling. Another one, two ridges over, start gobbling. Oh. So there I'd be going uh. after that one, trying to get close. Uh. He'd be, he'd shut up. And I'd end up chasing ghosts yeah. the whole morning. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is this is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not going to chase them anymore. I'm going to let yep. them come to me. Yeah. One of my, one of my favorite things that, uh, that you always say on our, on our Facebook page is, you know, I always ask you, you know, what you're doing or where you're going or what, and you're like, well, I'm going to be hunting just like every day. Cause I'm retired, you know? And I think that that, <laughs> you know, I think that the key, the key to Turkey hunting is hunting like a retired person, you know, hunt like you don't have somewhere to be. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that that would sum it up pretty good. Yep, yep. Yeah. I, that's something I haven't quite mastered yet, but I'll, I'll I'm I'm sure I'll figure it out. I'm sure I'll figure it out. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh man, yeah. So yeah. so patience, patience is the key. What kind of calling patience. strategies do you do? Because I know that there's the whole you know you can cluck and and purr and 
just general calls and like the, a lot of times people do sets of three or sets of five, you know, do you have a strategy as far as that goes? Nothing written in stone. It all depends what they're doing. Uh, you know, they call it taking their temperature. You know, some of the pros, um, let us, I'll play it by ear, see what they want to listen to. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I'll hammer them hard and then be quiet. Uh, that still works with the Merriams and the Rios. You can hammer them hard, but the Easterns, you got to be a little more coy about it. Hmm. Interesting. But, what, what kind of, so I'm so ignorant to the different types of turkeys. I know there's Rios and Easterns and, uh, Merriams and there's I don't know what kind we have up here in the Pacific Northwest. I just know they're uh, smaller than the Easterns. Uh, you got Osceola in Florida, Southern Florida. Uh-huh. You got the Rio Rio Grande. I hunted mine in uh, Oklahoma, and Merriams I got from Nebraska, and then our Easterns here. Uh, what you have out there, I really wouldn't know. Probably, um, probably the Merriams, I'd guess. I don't know. I would, I would, that's what I was going to say. I'm guessing Merriams, uh, they're more of a – well, the Rios would be more of a desert-type bird. Mm-hmm. or uh, Not necessarily desert, but uh, more open country, I would think. Yeah. Uh, it's possible. Oregon has so much – such a diverse um, – like – landscape it's possible that they have different kinds here too because we have the pocket that i live here in in northeast oregon is really densely wooded and lots of uh you know wilderness areas but over where my in-laws live in burns it's pretty much just miles and miles of high desert you know and uh, there's honestly probably not very many turkeys out there at all uh because i I don't think there's much of anything out there except for coyotes (laughs) and coyotes and and antelope but um you know just the high desert is uh you know there's a lot of that and then we have a couple different species of elk here oregon's one of the few places that you can actually hunt roosevelt elk Mm -hmm. um which is which is cool you know uh but yeah, it's 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 tough with turkey hunting, you know. I the the patience. I really appreciate your your points on that, and I'm gonna definitely make sure I put that into practice this year when turkey season rolls around. So, yeah, your your yeah. words are um, gonna be rolling around in my head. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, uh, now you can blame me if it doesn't work out. That's right. That's right. You you'll, you can expect to uh, you know for me to tag you in a Facebook post when I have an unsuccessful turkey season. Yeah, that's funny. Yep, totally. Um, So um, one of the things you said you wanted to really give some credit to a couple of different ranches that you've been hunting with, and I wanted to give you some time to do that as well. Okay, well, the the picture you're going to post, that was taken by my guide, Gus, uh, from Gus's Saltwater Adventures. He's out of... uh, South Padre Island, Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since you're up in the frosty north, that wouldn't be a bad idea. Go visit Gus down there in the winter. Heck yeah. Do some, do <laughs> some duck hunting. Yeah, some, uh, he does ducks uh, and a lot of fishing. Fishing, I guess, is his main thing. Well, I guess fishing and ducks. Okay. Uh, and then he's hooked up with a ranch down there. He was telling me before I left, doing exotics. Does he do uh, well, Sandhill Crane? Uh, we never discussed that. 
I don't know how that works down there. Yeah, that's one species I'm really interested in, in trying out because I've heard it's delicious, and it just seems like such a unique animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but anyway, if you're interested in getting out of the snow and the frost and all that, you look up Captain Gus' saltwater adventures. Um, and the ranch was Homestead Ranch. It's over by Crawford, Colorado. Uh, Tom McLeod and his family were fantastic. Uh couldn't ask for a better time, better place. Uh, the whole crew he's got is—I can't say enough about him. Actually, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I'm already planning on going back for uh, 2024 because they're booked for 2023. Uh, I'm going to take my kids out there and let them shoot an elk. There you go. You know, I'll, I'll pay for them one at a time, or two at a time, depends. And. Uh, I have no more room on my walls to hang big antlers. <laughs> so, so I figured I'd let the kids do, get their shot at it. There you go. So, but yeah, um, it's a fantastic place. Uh, oh, geez. Every, everything's taken care of. Uh, they can pick you up. There's two airports close by, uh, Gunnison and another one. Uh, they pick you up at the airport. Uh, they work with two butchers out there, so you can get stuff butchered up and flash frozen. Uh, taxidermists they work with out there did my uh, my European mount a twenty four hour turnaround. Oh wow! Yeah, it was all bleach white, perfect. That's twenty four hours. Impressive. Usually it takes months to get that kind of stuff done. Yeah, I was, when I talked to her, 24 hours? Oh, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> oh, okay. I never heard of it, but fantastic. That's wild. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I said, I love the place, the people. I'm sure... If you went out there, you'd have just a good time and elk all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so. that sounds like a blast. We'll have to, so if you guys are interested that you're listening and interested in elk hunting, definitely check that out and uh, make sure to give them give them a shout because uh, elk hunting is something that not everybody has access to. You know, if you're on the East Coast, your elk seasons are limited if not if not non-existent and uh you know it's something you should definitely look into because in my opinion elk hunting is the best kind of hunting yeah uh well you brought up a point that was good because us easterners we do have little populations of elk and old draw tags uh i'm still waiting i don't know 30 years to get a tag in pennsylvania oh, uh <laughs> But it's only like ten or twelve tags for hundreds, thousands of people are put in for them. Mm-hmm. So going to a ranch like Homestead is really the only feasible way I see for somebody from back east to really be able to enjoy it. Uh, I've got friends that did the self hunt, and then they hired a guide and were out there three times, never even seen an elk. Yep. Got bucked off a horse. Uh, you know, just what they spent in those three hunts, I spent less going to this ranch. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's so, it's pretty tough. Elk hunting is not easy. You know, it's extremely difficult. Yeah, um, there. I was talking to the one guy out there, and he said he, in his opinion, that there's too many elk hunters out there in Colorado now on public land. Mm-hmm. It's, it's getting to the point where it's not even safe anymore. Interesting. And that surprised me. No. Uh, yeah, it's. T- I mean, Colorado is the place. I mean, we have a lot of people that are that go on out, like that call into us that go on out of state hunts in Colorado, and mm-hmm. even me living in Oregon, where we have excellent elk hunting, I kind of want to go to Colorado, you know, because they have some re- pretty unique seasons. They have a lot of elk, um, and they have some big elk too. So, I mean, it's kind of yeah. it's kind of the hot spot, you know. Yeah, um, you do the private ranch thing like I've done. You'll come home with your elk, and you'll be happy. <laughs> yeah, yep, and the, they let you hunt like a retired person too. You you can. They, my guide. He, I met him for my first trip. He knew what I was like, and he walked me pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, the the one friend of mine. He's a Vietnam vet. He don't get around too good anymore, and he shot his bull. Uh, yeah, they'll they'll take care of you one way or another. Mm-hmm. You know, you got your limitations. You got to let them know and they make accommodations for it. They put you over a water hole or a wallow, or you know, they've got ways of making it work. That's good. Yeah, that's a, that's a sign of a good guy. They kind of just. You know, they, they push you, but only to you what your limitations are. You know, if you're mm-hmm. somebody that can, you know, wants to get out and get after it, then you can do that. Or you can kind of sit in a water hole if that's what's required, you know. But um, just to have the experience, I mean, I couldn't imagine living my life and not having ever even seen an elk. Um, just because they're such a, they're such a unique animal, you know. I mean, just every time I hear an elk bugle, it's just like it never gets old. Hearing that sound yeah. never, ever gets old. <laughs> and yeah, so it's... Uh, that and a turkey gobble. Yep. Yeah, turkey gobble too. Yeah, there's just certain <laughs> things like being out in nature that just never get old. You know, it's like when when whenever I hear an owl, like I, I love owls. Owls are my favorite animals. Mm-hmm. And whenever I hear an owl, like that will always get me excited. Like I, whenever yeah. I hear an owl, I'm like a little kid. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's it's an owl. Like <laughs> I can hear it. And then if I see an owl, oh my goodness, you, just, you forget about it. You know, and, and those are just the things that, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't hunt, which is probably unlikely, uh, (laughs) but if you're listening to it and you don't hunt, you definitely should get out in the woods, you know, wander around, get a tag, you know, and just enjoy the outdoors. Cause there's so many things that, that never get old, you know, and there's never ending adventure. That's true. Oh, I've been, I'll I'll be 64 in in two weeks. Mm-hmm. and i've had my hunting license since i was 11 and it still hasn't gotten old yep it it never will you know i know people just like you that have you know in fact my my wife's grandpa just shot a buck he's he's 84 85 and he mm-hmm. just he just shot a buck two weeks ago and i got to be there with him when he did that and that was really special but i mean you figure 84 85 still still enjoying hunting and still hunting every year you know so it's just it's one of those things where in, in our society, things are so temporal hunting is mm-hmm. something that you can, you can enjoy for a long time. You know, you can, re- if you really enjoy adventure and enjoy, 
enjoy you know the challenging aspects of it you can enjoy it for your entire life um i'm living proof yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. yeah, i plan i plan on being 80 and still climbing up the mountains and carrying deer out and, Heck you yeah. know, I, I don't i don't drag them so much anymore uh when i when i'm getting back in i'll string them up in a tree and quarter them and backpack them out and that seems to be a little easier on the old body but yeah i want to get to be 80 and still backpack deer out and have everybody talk about me crazy yep. old man's up that mountain again yeah <laughs> Yep. That's, that's what I want to do too. You know, and the thing is it's tough when you're young cause you can do a lot of, you can do a lot of things, but you can also hurt yourself really easy. So it's like, mm. you know, last year I, I just pat, I put my deer on my shoulders like a fireman's carry and just carried it out for a couple of miles, you know? Um, and mm. that's something like, yeah, you know, I could definitely hurt myself doing this, you know? And then, then if you're all beat up when you get old, you can't do that kind of thing, you know, at all. So yeah, it's a balance. Mm-hmm. You want to, you want to make sure you're getting out there and, and also taking care of yourself and, you know, uh, and I think that really hunting just, I mean, uh, just along the lines of just strict body conditioning, you know, it's excellent conditioning. There's not like, I run a lot. Like I run, you know, I, I run three, you know, three times a week and usually, you know, I think this week I'm on track to do 20 miles, um, this week, but mm. hunting is like, is like another level. <laughs> it's like, you know, when you're running, it's like, it's great. And it's, it's awesome. But when you're hunting, you still get tired, you know, it is, it's still brutal, you know? So it's a great way to take care of yourself and get in good shape. Yeah. Um, I, I don't run anymore cause I'm getting old, mm-hmm. but I do, uh, I get my backpack rigged up with uh, 50 pounds in it and I'll walk with that a couple of days a week. I'll do a couple miles, three, four, I've done up to six miles doing that. And that put a beating on me pretty good. Yeah. Well, doing a rock, I mean, that's, that's pretty tough. Yeah. that That's my workout. You know, and I think it's easier on the knees uh, with a third of, third of body weight. You're burning uh, twice the amount of calories as you do if you were just walking without it. Wow. So there's, there's more of a calorie burn. Uh, one thing I've seen with carrying the backpack like that it burns just a touch more calories than if you were running mm-hmm. oh really yeah I, i've seen that uh when i was looking into all this with the backpack and that huh it, it might have been only 20 calories more per hour or something it wasn't a tremendous amount but it was still carrying the weight in the backpack was burning more yeah i mean it's it's tough like i like and it's 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 such a it's so much different muscles because when you're running you know it's more like it's more it's just a different type of thing you know it's like more maybe calf i guess i want to say and then like when you're rucking and like hiking with a backpack it's almost more of like a like a quadricep like you're kind of pushing hard with your you know your upper legs and Mm. it's it's a totally different beast you know but i try to do a combination of those like i'll do I do a lot of running, but some, you know, sometimes I'll take a week off from running and I'll do stairs and, or sometimes Mm. I'll take a week off and I'll just, you know, ruck like what you're saying and stuff like that. I try to ruck on Sunday mornings is kind of when my wife and I'll go out before church and, and ruck Mm -hmm. around out there. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of, it's tough. Nothing wrong with that. No, no, you got to change it up. You can't just get stuck in a rut, you know, when it comes to your fitness. Yeah. But 
uh, last year I bought it, I was about a mile and a half from the truck, and I shot a doe and put her in the backpack, and by the time I got home, I weighed the backpack, and that was 74 pounds. Oh, geez. <laughs> uh, not too bad for an old man. Yeah. yeah, seriously. There's not a lot of people that are going to get out and get after it like that, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, well, and your, your physical yeah. condition is crucial. You know, it's like, this is a little bit of a soapbox thing for me, but it's like, as you, as you age, you, you lose about six and a half pounds of muscle every 10 years. And mm. so the more muscle you can retain, um, into your senior years, the better off you're going to be. And the more, you know, longevity you're going to have, and, and not just like, you're not going to just gonna live longer, but you're going to live better longer, you know? So, yeah. And, yep. hunt, and it uh, all comes back to you, hunting. <laughs> yep. The more the more you stay out as a lazy boy, the better off you are. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I I don't want to keep you too long today, Richard. Uh, I really appreciate you joining us on the podcast, and uh, yeah. we'll have to we'll have to have you back on maybe after hunting season sometime and talk a little bit more about uh, you know other, some of those other kinds of stories and things. <laughs> okay. I appreciate the time. Awesome. Uh, I've had a blast. Blessed talking to you also so cool um well if you guys who are listening to this podcast enjoyed what you heard today make sure to leave a comment like subscribe if you're watching on youtube or if you're listening on spotify or itunes uh leave a review and that's going to help us kind of get kind of spread the word about muzzle loading and grow the sport that we're all so passionate about uh, and uh, thank you so much for listening and taking the time, taking an hour out of your day to listen to us, and uh, we'll see you on the next episode.